You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Hi, EBF. Uh, please join me for the reading of Scripture this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF family. My name is Tim, and I serve here as lead pastor alongside just an incredible team of staff and elders. And our, our elder team has put together a statement in response to the events that we've seen unfold this past week. And I wanted to share that with you as we speak with one heart and one voice. Like so many of you, we were shocked and saddened by the events that unfolded in Washington, D.C., on January 6, 2021. We condemn the shameful and despicable rioting and storming of the Capitol and those who perpetrated and incited this violence. We weep over the resulting loss of lives stemming from the violence. We mourn for, with our sisters and brothers of color who, who saw the blatant disparity in the handling of different demonstrations. And we decry the parading of hateful symbols such as the Confederate flag nooses and gallows, and instances of anti-Semitism. We were particularly appalled by the mixture of religious imagery among the rioters, including Jesus Saves signs, Jesus 2020 banners, Christian flags, crosses, and Bibles. This syncretism is a symptom of Christian nationalism, which is nothing short of idolatry. It is anti-God, anti-gospel, dangerous, and heretical. We lament the lasting damage Christian nationalism has caused to our public witness and the barriers it has created to people finding help and hope in Christ and His church. When people think of Christianity, these are not the sort of images that should come to mind. Jesus does indeed save, not in the pursuit of power, but in the laying down of His life. The cross is not a political prop to be lifted up and marched under, but the place of torment where our Savior was lifted up so that we could be reconciled to God and one another. We are a people of truth who follow the God of truth, who sent His Son the way, the truth, and the life. On January 6th, we saw the reaping of the sowing of falsehood. Let us together stand for what is true, put off falsehood and conspiracies, condemn violence, love our enemies, listen to one another, unite rather than divide, 
and become more like Jesus. Join us in praying for the families of those who perished, justice and accountability for those responsible, the end of inflammatory rhetoric, the peaceful transition of power, the healing of our nation, and the faithful witness of the church. Our hope is not in presidents or governments, but in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is our only Lord and Savior. Our identity is not in a political party or personality, but in Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us. And our ultimate allegiance allegiance is not to a nation or ideology, but to Christ and his kingdom. May he find us faithful to the task of advancing his gospel and seeing his kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so some passages that we have been reflecting on are those such as John 14, 6, that reminds us Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Proverbs 22.8 says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Matthew 5.9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And John 13 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Church, if you have any questions or concerns or or prayer requests, or if you would like help processing these events that have taken place, or, or just need a listening ear, please please do not hesitate to reach out to us. You can reach out to myself or any of the elders. You can, you can email elders at ebfchurch.org and we, we would be honored to walk alongside you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we come to you with heavy hearts. We were shocked and deeply grieved by the events this week at our nation's capital. Lord, have mercy. This is, not, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. We pray for the families of those who perished in the violence, including the Capitol Police officer. We mourn alongside our, our sisters and brothers of color. We ask for justice and accountability for those responsible for inciting and perpetrating violence. Lord, would you bring an end to inflammatory rhetoric and a peaceful transition of power. We pray for the healing of our fractured and divided nation and for the church to have a faithful gospel witness. Would people indeed find help and hope in Christ and his bride? And would you stir us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? On this Lord's Day, would you inspire us and challenge us with with your holy word, the mystery of the gospel as it is revealed in the book of Ephesians. Holy Spirit, come. Awaken our hearts. Illumine our minds. Magnify Jesus. 
renew our faith, change our lives with your words of life. We pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery. I think back to some of my early days, especially loved reading Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes short stories and novels. I think about uh, reading Encyclopedia Brown books as a kid or even Hardy Boys mysteries at, at my grandparents' place. Even more recently, the film Knives Out, that murder mystery film, um, that whole genre is one that many people have come to appreciate. And I'm curious what other mysteries uh, you may appreciate. And while there's not only the genre of mystery, there's also the way that we often use that word mystery as well. We might say that a mystery is hidden or secret or something that is unexplainable. We might use the phrase, it's a mystery to me. But as we come to Ephesians 3 here, we discover that the Apostle Paul uses this term mystery actually several times in a short amount of space, but he uses this term mystery in a much different way than we might expect. And in our time together this morning, we're going to unpack the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. And in just these few verses, we will see the stewardship of the mystery, the revelation of the mystery, and the content of the mystery itself. So let's dive in, starting with the stewardship of the mystery in verses 1 through 2. When Paul begins here, when he says, when he says, for this reason, it's almost as though he points back to the entirety of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. He points back to the inclusion of the Gentiles in salvation history. And let's just remind ourselves of these soaring and sweeping truths here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So starting here in Ephesians 3, Paul reintroduces himself. He says, I, Paul, there's a note of authenticity in what he says here. And he reminds the Ephesians that he is a prisoner, not in a metaphorical sense, but he is actually imprisoned at this time. 
If you know some of, some of the story, he had been arrested because the Jews were hostile to his message that Gentiles were now welcome among the people of God. We see this in recorded by his faithful companion Luke in Acts 21. Acts 21, 27 through 36. I invite you to turn with me there. Follow, just watch or look through this scene as we go through this together. Just imagine this scene. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. He had been falsely accused here of bringing Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple in Jerusalem. And then when allowed to make his defense before the Jewish people, they listened to him as he recounted everything that had taken place in his life, his conversion on the Damascus Road, and how he had been dramatically transformed. But it's not until he reaches the the place in chapter 22, verse 21, when he says how Jesus told him to go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the point at which they rush together and they say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they're shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, and, and the scene goes on. This is what surrounded Paul's original arrest, imprisonment, and then eventually his appeal to appear before Caesar. He not only preached about this new multi-ethnic humanity in Christ and wrote about it like he does here in Ephesians, he also suffers for this reality. He suffers for this truth. And how does he characterize his imprisonment? He doesn't say here that he is a, a prisoner of Nero. No, he says a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, on behalf of you Gentiles. He was the apostle and minister to the Gentiles, as he reminds us in 1 Timothy 2. The sufferings he experienced were were specifically on their behalf. And so here is Paul giving us an emotional appeal. He had suffered for the realization of the multi-ethnic people of God. That's what he was suffering for, this building up of the multi-ethnic people of God in the church. And he could have blamed the Roman authorities for what was happening. He could have even blamed the Jews for what he was experiencing. But instead, he saw God's hand at work in this situation. He saw himself as a, a prisoner under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, here Paul 
sets off to pray for his mainly Gentile readers in and around Ephesus who have become a part of the new temple where God dwells by his spirit, as we're reminded in verse 22. But something interesting happens here. It's almost as though he breaks off his thought. It kind of reminds me of, have you ever faced a situation where you think someone is about to pray and you actually go ahead and, and, and bow your head, but then they keep talking and then you kind of awkwardly <laughs> open your eyes again? It's almost as though that's what happens here. And when he uses the phrase, on behalf of you Gentiles, it's almost as though it brings even more to mind about this mystery of the gospel on behalf of the Gentiles. Technically, it's called a digression, but that doesn't mean it's any less important. In fact, some of the themes that happen here in this passage are are central to the entire book. But he takes some time to unpack the mystery of the gospel as it has been revealed by God. And then also the ministry of the gospel that God has given him on their behalf. It has the effect actually of strengthening the bonds between them. And what we will see is that that prayer resumes once more in verse 14. But in this beginning of his digression, he starts off by saying, assuming that you have heard. This is geared toward those perhaps new disciples that have come about after his three-year ministry in Ephesus. He's not doubting whether they've heard. He wants them to think about the magnificence of God's grace, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. What is the stewardship of God's grace here? Actually, this is another one of those oikos words. If you think back to last week's message, there were several of these oikos words that were tightly woven in verse verses 19 through 22. And here's another one of those words, oikonomia, which means management of a household. But here it refers to to responsibility or to a task or to a commissioning to a task. It reminds me of my wife being certified as, as a teacher, being certified in the education world. Perhaps you can think of a way in which you've been commissioned, be it in your profession or, or in some other environment. I think about, about, uh, about officers who are commissioned in, in the army. I think about my own commissioning here early on at EBF. But Paul's commission is to further God's plan of including Gentiles in God's household of faith. And it is all because of God's grace. In fact, it is surprising how often Paul highlights God's marvelous grace given to him in the context of the, t- in the times when he talks about his ministry to the Gentiles. It's, it's very common, actually, to see his ministry to the Gentiles and this administering of grace bound up together. This unique ministry is not of his own making. He's very clear to say that. It was given to Paul by God himself. And what he makes clear too is that this is not to be kept to himself. It is not for his own privilege or benefit. It is for you. Actually withholding this ministry would deprive others of God's grace. What a vivid image. If he fails in his task, they would miss out on God's very grace. And so from the stewardship of the mystery, then we turn in verses 3 to 5 to the revelation of the mystery. The revelation of the mystery. In these 
three verses, we see how the mystery was revealed, why the mystery can be understood, and then also when and to whom the mystery was revealed. So first of all, the mystery was made known to Paul by revelation. We have to remember here yet again that the way mystery is used in English and Greek is not the same. We saw this earlier actually in Ephesians chapter 1. But in English, mystery often means something, something secret or hidden or something that we're unable to explain. Something where we just throw our hands in the air and say there's no explanation for that. In Greek, it had to do with something that is secret. And actually the way that this, became, this, this came to be used in ancient Greek was something secret that is then made known only to a privileged few, just to a few initiate, like initiates within a secret religion of some sort. But in the Bible, mystery refers to something that was previously hidden that has now been fully revealed to all by God. One can't help but think about, in the revelation of the mystery, one can't help but think about Paul's Damascus Road experience. How God took this individual who was terrorizing the early church and dramatically transformed him by the gospel, called him to to himself, and then sent him with the life-giving message of the gospel and sent him to the Gentiles. Then as when, when Paul writes, as I have written briefly, that's kind of a way of referring back to the first two chapters in the book, but especially some of the parallels in Ephesians 1 like verse 9 and verse 17. But Paul was given divine insight, as verse 4 says, into the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. It is about, it is about the role he plays in uniting believers in himself. Christ is both the source and the content of the mystery. Think about flipping on a light switch, for instance. That is what has happened. As Christ has come, it is though a light has been turned on. The mystery of Christ is now revealed. And in verse 5, we see when and to whom the mystery was revealed in the form of three contrasts. The first contrast is which was not made known versus revealed. The second contrast in in other generations versus now. And then the third contrast, the sons of men versus his holy apostles and prophets. You could almost make a little, a little chart that compares those three, those three phrases in just verse 5, which says, the whole thing together says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. By the way, that That phrase, sons of men, in verse 5, is a Hebrew expression that could essentially mean people. And that phrase, apostles and prophets, is one that is familiar to us as well from the previous passage. These are the ones that that are the recipients of this revelation and have now passed it on to us in God's holy word. And they are holy, they are They were set apart as the foundation of the church, that the the apostles and prophets were set apart for their distinct role as heralds of this magnificent truth. One of the things we might 
confused about this passage is we might think that everything having to do with Gentile inclusion was hidden. But that's not the case. In fact, the Old Testament had already pointed in many ways to how the Gentiles would be included among the people of God. Think, think to how God had promised to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. How King David and other, other, others welcomed non-Jews into the fellowship with God. The prophecies that the Messiah would inherit the nations. That Israel would be a light to the nations. And that one day the nations would stream to Jerusalem, the mountain of God. But to be full members, non-Jews had to become circumcised. Essentially, they had to follow these these rights in order to become a part of the people of God. And by this time here in the first century, it also involved washing themselves in water to become ritually clean. Think too about the ways that Jesus spoke of the ministry to the Gentiles and sent his followers to make disciples among them. But what is now revealed to Paul is the full reality of who Christ is And that salvation is possible to Jew and Gentile alike. That Gentiles do not have to become Jews first in order to become followers of Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is that this mystery was not revealed until the Holy Spirit was poured out. What is new here is the way God's plan would come about to include the Gentiles. The way God's plan would come to fruition by uniting Jews and Gentiles in Christ's body, creating one new humanity. This remained a mystery until God chose to make it known. And Paul had the privilege of stewarding, or we might say administering, this mystery. Idichiria Nainen writes this, uh, as we reflect on this reality, he writes, The Gentiles can come to share this special status, and the accompanying blessings through a door other than conversion to Judaism and following the law of Moses. God's secret plan has been to accomplish this through Christ the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. So God's great plan of bringing the whole universe to himself is fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. The basis for membership of God's family has nothing to do with race, caste, color, or gender. And so from the stewardship of the mystery to the revelation of the mystery, and then finally in verse 6, the content of the mystery itself. The very substance or definition of that mystery. I've already hinted at that here, but when we get to verse 6, when we get to verse 6, we are given that content or the substance of the mystery here. And that, that, that mystery is that the Gentiles are, and this is almost a way of, of Paul billboarding what he's going to say here, billboarding the mystery itself. By the way, I have to just pause here. I I don't get what's with all the hair restoring billboards in the Chicago area. That still still defies logic to me. But this is Paul's way of billboarding and saying, pay attention to this is the mystery, almost almost like the curtains being pulled back. And what he gives us are three words, three related words that we might call withness words each beginning with the prefix S-Y-N, meaning with or together. We saw very similar words in Ephesians 2 as well. Think of the word synonym, for instance. One way of helping us remember that these words, these 
words to start with, with S-Y-N, are words that go together with other words. And so these three words are withness words. They are together words. And the NIV actually does a great job of highlighting this. In the NIV, it, it translates this, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Each of these together terms is connected with the phrase in Christ Jesus. Each of these takes place within the sphere of Christ Jesus. It is in Christ Jesus that these amazing truths then become reality. And what's more, each of these together terms is through the gospel, through the instrument of the gospel. These are only possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. The gospel is not just a declaration of the mystery. Here, Paul presents it as the very instrument that God uses to bring about his purposes. So let's break these three together or withness words down. First, the Gentiles are heirs together, heirs together in Christ through the gospel. This parallels, actually has really rich parallels with what Paul had talked about with the whole image of adoption in Ephesians 1, and then also being members of the family of God in Ephesians 2. We are heirs of God together and co-heirs with Christ, as Paul writes in Romans 8, 17. And then in Galatians 3, 29, he writes, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Second, we are members together of one body in Christ through the gospel. This too is really similar to the membership language used in Ephesians 2 verse 19. And it shifts the image to the body, the body of Christ. This is actually the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. In fact, Paul very well may have coined this term for his own use. It kind of reminds me of when sometimes no other word will do. And, uh, Maybe one word I've been accused of, of using that is certainly no word at all is stick to a word to convey perseverance. But what Paul does here is he coins this term to express the revolutionary reality that Gentile Christians are incorporated into the same body as Jewish Christians and are fellow members of the body of Christ. And then the third witness word is that we are participants together in the promise. And this too is in Christ through the gospel. This points back to the covenant of promise and the Holy Spirit of promise earlier in Ephesians 1. In fact, Ephesians 1, 13 13 through 14 highlights this. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here it is the very spirit of God that constitutes the promise. So we are heirs together, members together, and participants together. This is the mystery of the gospel revealed. Dear friends, the mystery of the gospel revealed to Paul 
is that the multi-ethnic people of God are heirs together, members together, and participants together in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is the glorious truth of this passage, one that should ring in our hearts and should also cause us to look at the ways and the practices within our own church, within our own lives, within our own families. And so as we consider a few takeaways based on this glorious truth, I have to admit I'm in debt to Klein Snodgrass, who provides great reflections on this passage. But the passage such as this is not a throwaway. It is not just a digression, as we would use the term, or a rabbit trail that Paul goes on. No, it is central to actually four different what we might call theologies. A theology of suffering, a theology of grace for ministry, a theology of revelation, and a theology of unity. And so first, a theology of suffering. One cannot help but see here how Paul was willing to suffer imprisonment for his beliefs. And what he was willing to suffer for was the realization of the multi-ethnic church. Like Paul, we too must not blame people or circumstances. Instead, we too should see God's hand at work, even in the most dire of circumstances. To believe in God's sovereignty in the midst of trials. And to be able to see beyond our own circumstances. Just as Paul did, the circumstances did not define him. It was the gospel that defined him. He, would, he could say, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, he writes about being a, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Ultimately, our allegiance is to Christ. A passage like this lends to an overall theology of suffering. And second, a theology of grace from ministry. This is a really unique passage that almost presents the idea of being dispensers of grace and reminds us that withholding grace from others actually deprives people of God's very grace. Like Paul, we too are to be managers of grace, stewards of grace, administers of grace. We who have received such grace should extend that same grace to others. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says this, it says, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. All Christians should administer God's grace faithfully. And receiving grace doesn't mean that we we stay on the sideline. No, grace both connects, but it also commissions. Grace connects and it commissions. And so how would God have you use your grace gifts to benefit and to love and to serve others? Or are you withholding God's grace from others? Third, a theology of revelation. I love how this passage reminds us that the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed is not just for a privileged few. There are no levels. There are no secret initiates. There is no in-group within the body of Christ. This passage also reminds us of the nowness. I feel like I'm coining terms like Paul does too, but the nowness of these things. When he uses the term now in verse 5 and 10, he's, he clearly indicates that he's not 
waiting until heaven to see unity happen. Unity is not a goal simply that is left for the end of all things. It is a gospel truth to be lived now. Yes, things are not what they once were. We also recognize that they are not what they will be. But in the in-between, oh, in the in-between, we are called to live out these glorious truths, to live out our unity now. We now see, as Lynn Kohick reminds us, with what we might call, what she calls, Christ-tinted lenses, the awe-inspiring truth of the gospel. In fact, we can't help but even as we look back on the Old Testament, read with those Christ-tinted lenses so we are challenged not only with that this is not for a privileged few, that there is nowness to our task, but also a, th- a theology of revelation leads us to the reality that we now are re-revealers. Just as this great truth, the mystery of the gospel was revealed to Paul, was revealed to the apostles and the prophets, we do not sit back we are called to be re-revealers of this truth. And so who is it that God has placed in your life, on your path? Who is it that God is calling you to be a re-revealer of the mystery of the gospel so that the world might know? Last theology here, you probably see where this is going to, is a theology of unity. A theology of unity. You know, the metaphor of the church as Christ's body has become so common that we often miss the radical implications of what that really means. Later in Ephesians 5.30, we're going to see how Paul draws the connections between the marriage of a man and a woman, the, the two becoming one flesh. And he draws that connection then to the union of all believers with one another. Just to preview that here in In chapter 5, verse 30, he says, Because we are members of his body. And then goes on to say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We often gloss over that glorious truth. His teaching, though, that Jew and Gentile have the same social value in the body would have challenged the assumptions at the time and would have graded against what many viewed as the body being hierarchical. In fact, we can often engage in that, that same thinking ourselves. We might even say, well, if Christ is the head, then this group is the neck, and this group it in, and ranks certain groups and gifts as more important than others. This passage, too, I think gives us a profound withness. I keep using that term, too, a profound withness. It reminds us that we share the same inheritance, that we are in equal relationship with one another, and that we receive the same promises and blessings. Not only is there a profound withness that this should, that not only should this profound withness lend to an overall theology of unity, but also a supernatural togetherness. There is no room for separation. There is no room for believing what Paul says about the mystery, but not practicing it. There is no room for rationalizing this togetherness as future and not for today. We 
must remain focused on the full gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just one thing among many, nor is it just that kind of little message that, that, that tips you into the kingdom and then you just put it on the shelf and don't think about it anymore. The gospel is all we have. It is the gospel of grace, of Christ's death and resurrection, and of the full inclusion of all of God's people together. We need to be gospel people once more. That is what evangelical means in its core. We must give ourselves to know the gospel, to be shaped by the gospel, and to apply the gospel when, even when addressing our differences with one another. The gospel that many of us proclaim is often way too individualistic as well. John Stott writes, on thinking about this theme, he writes, The good news of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which Paul preached, is that he died and rose again, not only to save sinners like me, though he did, but also to create a single new humanity. Not only to redeem us from sin, but also to adopt us into God's family. Not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. Thus, the church is an integral part of the gospel. The gospel is good news of a new society, as well as of a new life. You know, our divisions today may not be between Jew and Gentile, but we must see how our divisions today and our tendency toward individualism are exposed, laid bare, and challenged by the very unity presented in this text. Being in Christ means being made one with all who are in him. And what that means is that within God's church, there is no place for white supremacy. There is no place for any form of racial superiority. The church should be what God has called us to be, a united multi-ethnic people for his glory. The mystery of the gospel revealed to Paul is that the multi-ethnic people of God are heirs together, members together, and participants together in Christ Jesus through God's gospel. This mystery is now entrusted to us as we go forward as re-revealers of this profound truth. Re-revealers of this profound truth in our families, in our workplaces, in our community, in our nation, and beyond. This world is indeed hurting and broken. There are so many that desperately need to hear the re-revealing of these truths. Will God find us faithful to that task? Will he find us faithful to advancing his gospel of grace and to seeing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your servant, Paul. We thank you for his writing of this letter so many years ago and how it reaches down and it speaks to us in this moment, in this time, and in this place and challenges us with the great truth, the great reality of how there are no more divisions, there are no more barriers among the people of God. 
and that this is all because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is all through your glorious gospel. Oh Lord, would you find us faithful, faithful instruments of your grace, faithful communicators and doers of your gospel. Would you give us all of the grace needed, Lord, to steward your gifts of grace and to extend that same grace to everyone we come into contact with. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your work in this world. And we thank you for the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed. We praise you, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.